For this issue of Ojai Talk of the Town, Mark Lewis and I talk about Johnny Cash, the famous man in black, and the legends which grew up around his years in the Ojai Valley. Mark is the former chairman of the Ojai Valley Museum, a member of the Historical Preservation Committee, and other civic pursuits, including recently taking over as the chair of the literary branch of the Ojai Art Center. He is a veteran journalist and perhaps the finest long-form narrative feature writer I've ever known. He is also my friend and has been writing for the Ojai Quarterly for more than 10 years, including this wonderful story about Johnny Cash first published in the spring of 2013, which continues to draw readership on our website to this day. Hey, Mark. Brett, how you doing? Good, good. Uh, thanks for joining us. I just wanted to um, check in. I just looking at the website the other day and boom, you know, we've had so much traffic related to hikes and swimming holes in Ojai and, you know, the punch bowls and everything, people going through the website. But the one story that I see from the archives that keeps turning up is uh, Johnny Cash. So I thought, uh, you know, that was one of those uh, evergreen stories people just seem to be fascinated by Johnny Cash why well, is, is that well he's he's uh he's an evergreen story for the whole country and it's, we just happen to have this uh cool ojai angle so uh i guess we get a lot of uh i think there's a lot of traffic to all sorts of cash related stuff and somehow you know it works its way down to to our story yeah, I'm, uh, I just happened to be looking at it again. It's just fascinating, this whole um, sojourn that he had here. And as you make it clear in your story, it didn't really go that well for him. No, worst time of his life, and certainly in the, the life of his first wife, Vivian. Yeah, so tell us about that. Well, I guess a good intro is that uh, people don't realize everyone saw the uh, – movie Walk the Line with Joaquin Phoenix, and uh, I think she was living here at the time or, or moved here shortly thereafter. Oh, yeah, Reese Witherspoon. Witherspoon. Yeah. So that was in a great film, but it was it was essentially uh, mostly covering the period that he lived in Ojai, but they never mentioned the word Ojai, I don't think. It was just someplace in California. Yeah, you'd have to pick up the uh, spring 2013 issue of Ojai Quarterly to get the details absolutely. on that. Yeah, That is absolutely true. Well, how it uh, started was when Johnny, um, who was a star at Sun Records, uh, like Elvis and all the other stars at Sun Records, eventually uh, moved on to a bigger company. And this was in, uh, I think, 58. Uh, he signs with Columbia Records. And uh, now he's already a star, a country star, but with some crossover appeal. Songs like Walk the Line were uh, big hits. And uh, he um, eventually got restless and uh, signed with Columbia. And that's when he moved from Memphis to L.A. This is in part because he had an idea of becoming a film star, again, like Elvis. So uh, he and his family, they had three, three kids, three daughters at that point, he and Vivian. And they moved to, and they've actually bought Johnny Carson's old house in Encino because Carson had moved. Uh, uh, near to, beautiful downtown Burbank, as he used to say on uh, Tonight uh, Show. 
Right, but he wasn't. Uh, that was later. He had moved east to to uh, host probably the Tonight Show, which started in New York. And then he moved west. So anyway, Cash winds up with his old house, and in in Encino. So he um, he never really made. I think he made one or two films that didn't uh, take off for him. But not like Blue Hawaii. No, <laughs> that classic <laughs> film, a classic of cinema. No, so he didn't become a star in that sense. But he he was he had, they, they had a uh, country. A syndicated country uh, show called, I think, the Music Hall or Town Hall Music. Then he was on that a lot. That was and that was in Los Angeles. That was in Los Angeles, and he, it's you know, the record company and so forth and so on. So, but he didn't really love um, big city life. He was a country boy, and he also wanted to get his from uh, Eastern um, Arkansas, right? Delta. He was from Arkansas. And, so his uh, closest city growing up would have been Memphis, just across the river. Is that? I don't know how close, a, but yeah. And then, then, of course, he ended up uh, living there. As you would appreciate, he joined the Air Force uh, as a really young yeah. man. Yeah. Therefore, he wound me up. And, uh, me and Johnny and Larry Hagman. Exactly. And as you, I don't know about Larry, wound up in San Antonio where you have to do basic training. He wound Every, up there. I think we all went through San Antonio, Lackland Air Force Base. Right. Well, There's anyway, like six up, or seven bases in San Antonio. Uh, there used to be. They got rid of Kelly Field, among other things. It's a huge place. Anyway, so Johnny uh, met Vivian there. She was a high school, Catholic schoolgirl. Uh, and then he goes off to Germany and writes constantly and finally gets comes home, marries her. So he was already a singer-songwriter during, uh, and, and when he was in service. Yeah. An inspiring singer-songwriter, yeah. Uh, so he comes home and he's uh, they're living in Memphis. And raising, they have three little girls, and he's, uh, I think he was a door-to-door appliance salesman, but he keeps plugging away, and finally, um, Sun Records signed him. Anyway, so three years after that, now he's got hits like Walk the Line, written about Vivian, uh, and they've moved to uh, Encino, And but he is, um, he wants to get his parents, who are even more country than he was, to move out. They weren't going to go for L.A., they weren't even going to go for the Valley. But he discovered the Ojai Valley. On a, he's out riding around with his manager, I think. And he says, wow, I could get him out here. So he buys a trailer park in Oak View. It's still there, north of Willie Street. And still owned by the no, no, no. Cash family? No, no. Kathy or somebody made mention, Kathy Gash made mention of it not that long ago. Hmm. Like it's still uh, in the family. But just I, as an aside, I did not uh, know that. Um, but it, he called it Johnny Cash Trailer Rancho, and he brought uh, his parents Ray and Carrie out here. They agreed to come out and live there and run it. So it's kind of a make work thing for them. But it was also so that for a while they would, he Johnny and family would visit from Encino, uh, but they finally he just thought, oh, it's, I'd rather live here, and he moved his business office to Ventura. And he moved his family to a brand new dream home that he had supervised the building of himself uh, halfway up a mini mountain or a large hill, depending how you want to look at it, yeah. in Casita Springs. It's still quite evident those those uh, what Cypress do you call those trees. Cypress, yeah, he, he trees. those. That's just, and the house is the same house. And it's it's all by itself above Casita Springs, still there. Last I knew, the, the Montecito fire chief. Chip Hickman owned it and lived there, but he may have yeah. moved since I wrote this story. I'm not sure. I remember that. I'd, I'd like to go up to that property just to see how it, the, the view from there it must be quite mm-hmm. spectacular. 
Well, it's uh, yeah, it's 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 uh, his daughter Roseanne, of course, became a star recording artist in her own right. Uh, writes has told cash biographers and about how awful she thought it was to live in the. They were like this rich family on the hill, and Casita Springs, then as now, was not exactly uh, you know Beverly Hills of Ventura County. It was smaller and poorer. Then it was, certainly it was smaller. It's best known as the home of one of the world's biggest bullfrog ranches. <laughs> and that was uh, uh, oh, then interesting. Johnny, then Johnny moved there, and he, of course, was the biggest uh, frog. And then the bullfrogs time. moved out. Well, they were certainly no doubt abashed and slunk away in shame. Anyway, so this is 61, and he, they, they build that house. And uh, it's got uh, all kinds of custom touches, but it's, you know, it's very much a ranch house. We're not talking about a guy who had a uh, strong sense of architectural history, but he knew what he wanted, and this was his dream house. And uh, Vivian said in her memoir that she was all for this move, even though it's the middle of nowhere. Um, because she wanted to get him away from uh, the, the life temptations. Well, the life of yeah, yeah, exactly. He was a uh, he wasn't a rock star, but he was a rock star life that he was living, and he was taking pills and seeing other women, and he, she was hoping this would be better than that. But instead, it was all downhill for Vivian and Johnny after that. So the whole five years um, in Ojai, in the Valley, anyway, uh, were not successful for their marriage. Uh, or I guess their lives overall, but that is the period that mostly that movie covers. Because when the the girls, when Vivian and the girls moved in, as it happens, the house was finished. Sixty one, Johnny was on the road, and it was the, the tour for which he fi- he hired June Carter as one of his uh, supporting acts. He had a traveling show called the Johnny Cash Tour or something like that. Oh, I thought she was performing with her family, the Car- Carter she, family. She did in in general, but she was a she was her own act as well, and she and he hired her. Yeah, because that that's she was country music royalty. The Carter family was. She really, was, uh, but she was not. Goes a, right back to the roots of American roots music. But she, June Carter, was not in, in her own right a huge star. She had had hits, I think, and you know, with the country, with, with the Carter family. That, that's huge, but June by herself was, was just uh, Mother Maybell and yeah, Aunt. Uh, all that is yeah, right. But but when Aunt it Sarah, June, it was not somewhat less of a big deal. And she is actually, I think, she started out to be an actress and was a comedian. That was kind of her thing. But she's saying she had hits anyway. So she joins um, the, the 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 cash tour, and uh, you know one thing led to another relatively quickly, as near as I can tell. Um, so so Johnny's touring all the time because he likes to tour all the time and he even more so as uh, life with Vivian is not working out. Cause when he's home, she's of course unhappy that he's home. So infrequently and just and, getting there or getting ready to go and never settled in. And he would run off she was having a hard time uh, leashing him. He would run off to the back country. Oh yeah. She couldn't leash him at all. Uh, but five years of this, in fact, he, he, one of his trips off to the back country, you know, he'd spend days, uh, on pet pills and just sort of staring at the sky, but he uh, he went way off into Sesby and uh, his this is 1965 and his uh, somehow it, he had a faulty exhaust on his pickup truck. Somehow he, he, his truck started a fire, or that was his. Yeah, we've anyway. heard these. Yeah, these great anecdotes yeah. about his years in Ojai. Well, it took him a week to put it out, and, and uh, it routed uh, 40 condors from a 
a condor sanctuary, and, and uh, the, the feds actually went after him and uh, fined him, I think, $125,000, the cost of putting the fire out, which was... Yeah, which they do. They, well, they do do that, except they rarely uh, sue somebody who has the resources to pay him back, but that's quite typical for the Forest mm-hmm. Service, other agencies, to bill the perpetrator of a fire for the suppression costs. Yeah, he was seems not fair too, enough. He was not too cooperative. The hearing he's quoted in books is saying, "You mean those ugly yellow buzzards? What do I care about your yeah. ugly yellow buzzards?" Well, Mister Cash. Anyway, so they were they were still in all uh, five years in Ohio. I mean, the girls all attended uh, Catholic schools in uh, in Ventura, but they uh, they would drive north into the Ohio. They knew lots of people in Ohio, and, and not only his parents. Uh, there's many stories people remember about Vivian and Johnny having eating a meal at the Ohio Valley Inn. Johnny was apparently often a jerk to the waitresses, and Vivian would have to apologize afterwards. So stuff like that. Oh, um, really? That's and, that's unfortunate. Well, I guess he would get drunk, and they weren't getting along. Um, but uh, he had—I think he had more fun with Chef Woolley, his buddy, who was also a. Yeah, I've heard stories about him and Cheb uh, out on the yeah. boat on Lake Casitas. Yeah. Mr. Purple Pe- People. Yeah, they actually own, used to own uh, the Purple Wagon Mall in Oak View together. Um, and, Wait, Johnny uh, and Johnny Sheb. and Sheb co-own that. They don't call it that anymore, but they used to. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. they own that. That was an investment property like the Johnny Cash Trailer Rancho. And so they yeah, they socialized I mean, with his parents. They went hunting. Well, he went hunting. Um, he, folks lived here. David Frizzell lived in Ohio. He told me uh, when I interviewed him, I couldn't figure out why he wanted to live in Casita Springs. <laughs> but it was, it was I guess, halfway between. The, the, you know, his office was in Ventura. And he was up above the, uh, the nondescript little town in his own little per- dream house. So... Is a big man in a little little town. Yeah, big, he, he, big fish in a small pond. Big frog, you might say, in a big frog, large, yeah. large bullfrog pond. Yes. So anyway, they were five years, and um, they were definitely part of the scene here. I mean, Johnny, of course, wasn't here half the time, and there's lots and lots. Well, of still, things. still part of the scene because you can't go through Casita Springs without seeing the billboard put up mm-hmm. by um, John Eubanks and. Jules Eubanks and oh, that was greeting after, people. That was after our you know. story came out. Interesting. Yeah, I think it was maybe uh, not entirely coincidental. Maybe not. But that's, that's fine by me. I, I like. I get a. I get a smile every time I go by that. that. And you can see the house from about that angle mm-hmm. up on the hill. Oh yeah, it's, cypress it's, trees and it dominates. Uh, there's a long, long driveway. Uh, which curves around and there's more houses to the right of it now or south of it than there was in his day. But, um, so he I basically think, had that whole hill to himself then. I think so. Yeah. And according to the girls, I guess some of them liked it more than others. Roseanne, not so much. And she remembers rattlesnakes and cause they go out and play. One guy who grew up in the town below said they were like these Royal family on the hill. You'd see the girls out in the yard playing. There were eventually four of them. Um, the girls, daughters, and uh, but they didn't necessarily come down and hang around at the bait shop, you know, <laughs> live bait yeah. place, uh, anything like that. Um, but they, uh, yeah, they were. They had a pre- They were 
you, you didn't miss them. Like there's this famous uh, Johnny used to play Christmas music through loudspeakers loudly every year. Finally, when somebody complained and a chagrined sheriff's deputy had to go up there and tell him to cut it. And Cash said, I didn't tell Johnny Cash to turn down the music. Turn it, yeah, turn it off. Right in the middle of Joy to the World. And Cash said, I didn't <laughs> think I didn't think there was a Scrooge left. <laughs> but um yeah, so you didn't you did not know that uh, Johnny Cash was there, even if he wasn't there. Because he was now important. did he ever play locally? Didn't he play at the there was a honky tonk in he, Cedar Springs or Foster Park? Foster Park one time. Long, the vanished town. It was called Okies when they were living there. Uh, but the same place had formerly been known as the Moose Lodge. And if you go online, you can buy a, a like a little poster that advertises Johnny Cash is coming to the Moose Lodge in, I think, 56. So really, really early. Before he moved here. Before he moved. No, yeah. When he was here, he did not. Uh, that I'm aware of. Interesting. People tell stories Ohio, about it. Ojai used to be, yeah, it used to have a reputation as a honky-tonk town, Saturday night honky-tonk. Yeah, kind of place. There was much more opportunity to hear live music 50, 60 years ago than there is today, which uh, feels kind of sad. Yeah, that's true. And uh, I don't know that he ever, I haven't heard that he got up and played. He used to, apparently, he used to be uh, one in town, a regular at places like The Wheel. Him and Cheb uh, apparently had a, a deep and gorgeous thirst, both of them. And uh, of course, in Ventura, places like The uh, the Dan Bar, the Bar Dan. There's a, uh, a, this, a com- country music couple named uh, Johnny and Joni Mosby, and they lived. Uh, she still lives in Santa Paula, as a matter of fact. And they would, uh, they were probably B plus level country stars themselves. And and uh, she used, she told me that they they had this bar. Gosh, I think it was called the Bar Dan. It was well known in its day, and Johnny and Chev used to show up half tanked. And he was going down, down, down. She said, I "Down, down." Quoting, yeah. quoting a Johnny burning ring. Yeah. Wow. Man. So this was uh, his spiraling down his lost years. Yeah, and he wasn't quite as successful. I mean, five years ago was a lot of time. He had hits. He had, I think, number one somewhere in there. But he was basically physically and mentally and psychologically spiraling down. And I don't think his career was in super healthy shape either. Although he was a star, he was Johnny Cash. But uh, uh, although, you know, it's interesting, the uh, we can talk about the uh, Folsom Prison Concert, which is what really... Yeah, because there's another Ojai connection there, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, and very, very much a Ojai connection. Yeah, the, the, the concert happened after he had moved... After well, he in '66 uh, he left Vivian. He was off on tour, never came back. And uh, about two, within two years, she filed for divorce, and uh, she got the house and I think the purple wagon, his half of that, and he got the Johnny Rancho uh, trailer. And uh, obviously, he got plenty, um, but she remarried anyway. Uh, so '68. His parents are still living here, though, at the trailer. And he, uh, in the beginning, we begin the article. He's, he's uh, it's, I think, January uh, 10th, 1968, and he's driving that, probably for the last time, driving out of the Ohio Valley down Highway 33. 
um, because he was he had been visiting his parents and he was driving to uh, LAX to fly up north to do the Fol- the famous Folsom Prison concert, which is actually his second one, but we'll get to that. Um, and I but the first was, one that was recorded. No, the second one, which was the only one that was recorded. Yeah, there was a there had been one earlier, but we'll talk about that in terms of how the the other Ohio connection. But here, you know, that was when he left, and he had just Vivian had just remarried, and he was about to remarry to marry uh, June, and that was probably the last time he was ever in the Ohio Valley, January '68, and he must have. I'm speculating, of course. But so not, just to just to slow down for a second, there, uh-huh. uh, what was who uh, Vivian? I think his name was Dick Distin. That yeah. she ended up marrying. Yeah. How did she meet him? Was he Ojai person or Ventura person? No, I think he was a, a Ventura. Uh, I think he was a police officer. I don't know much about. Oh him. yeah, that's right. He was a police officer. Yeah, I don't know much yeah. about. Him. I wonder if he was the one that was uh, got the call to go up there and tell him to turn down the Christmas music. I don't know. I think I would have. Heard well, let's that. say let's uh, say that he was. Let's just put that out that's there. That's true. This the is world. not print after all. Um, yeah, to do a little little informed speculation, I suppose. I do not know. Um, but anyway, what what I know about Vivian, it's uh, hard not to root for her because she put up with a lot and raising a big brood of of daughters. Uh, from what I know, mm-hmm. from what I've heard from Kathy and some of the others, they were quite a handful. And that uh, you know, it wasn't uh, it wasn't what she'd hoped for. No. She was uh, quite. She, you know, deserved better, I felt. And I think Johnny realized that later, too. I think he uh, expressed regrets at various points in his career. Oh, yeah, yeah. How it, all tu- how it all turned out. There's a nice quote, which I'm trying to remember, that he, he was talking about uh, Ohio and how much he loved it. It was beautiful there. Uh, he, he said, uh, as many people used to think, it's not true, but he said, Ohio is... Uh, Chumash for nest. Yeah, but nesting is not what I did there. That's his quote. Um, yeah. So he's, yeah, I mean, he, he clearly knows he was uh, not, did not turn out to be, uh, did not walk the line as it turned out. And that song was about Vivian, but that was in palmier days. Yeah. Because you're mine, I walked the line. Anyway, uh, yeah, Vivian, uh, according to, um, according to, Roseanne in, in her memoir, Vivian Blossom, when she after she finally divorced Johnny. I'm not sure how well the marriage to Distant worked out, but she according to, to Roseanne, she, you know, suddenly became a gardener and so you know, just developed her own life instead of just waiting for Johnny to show up. Yeah, so, good for her. So yeah, hopefully she had a uh I think she did have better times after the divorce, but I don't think she ever got over it. Reading her own autobiography, it doesn't seem like she, she, she still was obviously bitter about June and the whole thing to a, to an extent anyway. Yeah. So back to uh, Folsom prison. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is when 60, 68, June, uh, excuse me, January 68 was when they recorded the concerts, but uh, we can, there's the, the other, Oh, high connection goes back a few years. Which, uh, shall we go into that? Yeah, sure. Okay. Because it involves a notorious murder that well, happened here. Well, we, don't, we don't get a lot of those around here, thank God. No, no, we don't. Uh, this was actually goes all the way back to 1954. And uh, a guy named Earl Green 
was a former Marine. I think he'd served in World War II, as a matter of fact. And he was on parole for armed robbery in Florida. And he had uh, come out here with his wife to uh, live in, I think he was living in Pasadena, didn't like it there. Um, and he met a guy that he, this, he was working as, a, I think, a coach. There are too many little old ladies. Yeah, including, especially the one who was his mother-in-law, who didn't <clears throat> apparently think that, that uh, yeah. he was a great son-in-law. You know, be, uh, he thought she was going to rat him out to the Florida authorities because he'd broken parole by moving out of state. Anyway. I know that many, many mother-in-laws feel like their daughter's married down. Yeah. Well, but this lady, she had in this point. specific case, she had a very good point. She had a point. Yeah. Well, Earl... Um, and this guy, his name was uh, Lachance. He said, Lachance said, hey, I, I used to, he were, used to work for a resort in Ojai. Um, I don't know which one, either the Inn or Matilla Hot Springs or uh, Wheeler. Well, probably one or the other. Uh, but anyway, he said, I, I can get a job up there. And then your mother-in-law, no one will know you and so forth. So they drove off one day in 1954, stopping for beers several times along the way to get jobs in Ojai. And they get to whatever resort this was and they said oh the, the the guy you need to talk to has gone out of the office for a couple hours so they to kill a couple of hours they went out to uh matilla hot lake which was a relatively new thing then and already still enough no doubt to hang around and, yeah. and uh, do some target shooting but uh instead earl picked up a baseball bat and bashed in this mr lachance's head Oh man! So you didn't use a bullet? You didn't figure that would be cleaner if they no, were target shooting? It seems have, obvious. That, yeah, but you know, he uh, uh, whatever. I, I think it was a crime of opportunity. It was a bat. The guy let uh, went down to uh, get a drink, drink of water. Boom! So Earl takes nine dollars, which is all the guy had in his pocket, and drove off in his car. Oh, I thought you were going to say that he nailed the job interview. <laughs> I think he gave up on the job interview and figured uh, <laughs> figured he got his nine bucks. He, he, he go out and knows how long it take him to earn that yeah, honest labor. Got a, I think he got a wristwatch too and a car. And uh, yeah, I decided to sign up for the gig economy and go back into armed robbery. So he goes back to Pasadena, picks up the wife, and uh, uh, off he goes on a cross-country crime spree, more spree, more robberies, Ohio, back in Florida, another robbery. One in Ohio, he got like 5,000 bucks. And wait, he had a he had a stepdaughter too, oh, yes, right? Yes. Like so the, three, the four years a, old. Like a three-year-old, uh, not his daughter, but the stepdaughter. So all this, and he apparently picked up a male accomplice along the way. Anyway, from Florida, he doubles back out west. Finally, they ran him down outside of Amarillo. And he had 75 cents in his pocket at this point. And he surrendered quietly, not a shootout or anything. So crime does pay, just not very well. Is well, it does. For Earl, let's, uh, let's say it didn't work out as, as he, his hopes and dreams might have had it. So he comes, they bring him back to Ventura, and they, uh, he, he tried. He claimed that he, uh, it was self-defense because the guy had made a pass at him. So he had the old uh, homosexual panic defense. Oh, the jury man. didn't buy it. He's convicted and off to death row with him in San Quentin. But back then, uh, and he didn't have money for lawyers particularly, but every uh, the rule was any kind of capital murder conviction was automatically appealed. And for some strange technical reason, the California Supreme Court threw out not his conviction, but his, his death penalty. There was something wrong with the jury's 
the judge's instructions to the jury. So he gets another shot at not guilt or innocence, but uh, what what to, what what they're going to do with him. But he had um, there was no reason to think the next jury wasn't going to send him right back to death row. So he goes into some crazy act. This is all recorded by like the L.A. Times and things. It was it was a, a big murder, I guess, at the time. What were the cross? It was pretty sensational. Yeah, yeah with a cross country crime and spree. That. And it wasn't uh, like the front page of the L.A. Times. Weird murder. It was, it was certainly covered. Followed and bigger in yeah. Ventura and Oxnard. Big, big, big. So he he goes. He pretends to be crazy, and you know that's not easy to do, or everyone would do it. But he he actually got away with it, and and it was sent off to a Tascadero. Until yeah, I think that's one of those uh, myths or popular beliefs that the insanity defense is, you know, very easy. But it, it almost never works. It's it's so rare that well, this was anyone successfully presents that, an insanity defense. Well, this version was it kind of like preceded what would be a, a regular insanity defense because he acted so crazy that he couldn't, and he was declared incompetent to stand trial. And uh, then he escapes from Atascadero, you know, it's gone and on. And he, he, he pulls the same act the next wow. time they bring him in, and they buy it yet again. And back he goes to Atascadero. Inevitably, a psychologist would say, oh, he's actually good enough to stand trial. And, but by this time, he'd worn down the, the Ventura County DA, uh, Gustafson was his name. I think his people are still around. And uh, they just said, oh, the hell with it. We'll give you life in prison. So... Off he goes to Folsom, which is where the lifers would go for serious crimes. And this is like 1958 by now. He's, he's like 30 or 31. He's going to spend the rest of his life in Folsom prison. And uh, so he, he settles, settles down to do his time and keep his nose clean and uh, in the prison context anyway. And he, he, starts, he gets a bass guitar and starts a country band. He, he likes country music. He becomes the DJ the voice of Folsom Prison, and he loves Johnny Cash. Now, meanwhile... Yeah, do we know if he had any music uh, background or anything that would no. lead you to believe that he would become uh, the prison DJ? No, he had not... He, must have, he was a fan, I guess, but he learned to pay, play bass guitar in prison, and he formed a band. He had you know, a lot of time on his hands. Oh, something. yeah, sure. So that's what, I think that's when he picked up. So... Um, but meanwhile, back back in in the Ventura when he was in jail, he he would be visited by this local minister named Floyd Gresset, who just was would as part of his ministry visit prisoners in uh, the local jail. He had a church on the the uh, the avenue, as we call it. You know, so Ventura. he figured that Earl Green was his part of his flock because of the proximity, or this was something he just did ministry to no, it just coincidentally figured, that. That uh, Earl Green had yeah, Ventura it, connections. Yes, yeah. yeah, so maybe Earl wasn't from Ventura. He, he just happened to commit the crime here. But because he was in the jail, Grissette, I guess, I'm not sure if it's Grissette or Grissette. Anyway, we'll call him Floyd. The Reverend Floyd just took the jail as part of his uh, flock, in, in effect. Anyway, and he, 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 in later years, when Earl was at Folsom, Grissette or Grissette would come up there Again, just visiting with with the prisoners he knew from Ventura, so he would they kept up the friendship or the relationship. So Earl, Earl's a Johnny Cash fan, and Johnny Johnny had had a thing for doing prison concerts. He'd done one at San Quentin, 
that famously uh, was attended by Merle Haggard. Yeah. In prison for burglary. I, I do remember so that. Earl, so he loved the captive audience. So it seems. Well, he, you know, remember, this is a guy, Johnny Cash, his first hit, and still perhaps one of his most famous songs is Folsom Prison Blues, long before. Oh, yeah. So know, this is ever, just natural for him, yes. Well, I think I think he had, I mean, he, he never did hard time. He spent a night or two in jail, drunk tank, tank type stuff. Johnny, I mean. Yeah. Uh, but I think he he uh, was a, a not a, not attracted. He was attracted maybe to the romance of uh, the outlaw. Yeah, the outlaw exactly. So anyway, uh, Earl Green in Folsom apparently said to Floyd, the minister, uh, who who by, by this time Johnny lived in Ohio or in Casita Springs, and he would go to Floyd's church. I think the two of them actually went out drinking from time to time when they would sort of have a fall from from goodness together. Um, anyway, so Floyd knew Johnny and must have mentioned this to Earl, and Earl said, oh, I love Johnny Cash. Do you think he, you know, I know he's, he did a concert in San Quentin. How about Folsom? So Floyd passed this on next time he saw Johnny. And Johnny loved the idea, but he couldn't get, He's still with Columbia Records at this point. He couldn't get Columbia to, to go for it. He wanted to record a live concert there. The San Quentin concert had not been recorded, although they did another one later. So, uh, but, but then, miracle of miracles, uh, Johnny got assigned to a new producer named Bob Johnston. And Johnston loved the idea. So it's on. And, uh, oh, wait, wait, I'm getting ahead of myself. Wait, first... This, this all happened when Earl was still at Folsom. Earl, John, Johnny sets up the Earl helped set up the concert. This was not recorded. He just went out and did a concert at San Quentin for the inmates, but it wasn't recorded. This is the kind of thing he did. Is what he did at San. I'm sorry, at Folsom. He had done it at other prisons. He, so after that, and Earl had like been the sound man for that concert. Um. And after that, Johnny wanted to go back and do it and record it. And it, but only, uh, I don't know, a year later did, did, did he get a producer who liked the idea. So they set it up. And he goes back. And it's the famous Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison concert. And it, it turned his career around, made him a crossover pop star. He winds up with his own TV show. I vaguely remember that. I was like eight years old at the time. And it even dented my consciousness that it was like... Was he? I remember thinking, was he in jail, and that's why he was recording, like from the prison. I, it was, you know. You yeah, get, well, he, he, it was. I think you're right about the outlaw uh, romance. Um, I don't think he actually wanted to spend years in prison, mind you. Um, anyway, by the time of the second concert, the one that was recorded and became the legend. Earl Green had been transferred to uh, Vacaville, unless uh, he, he had effectively graduated to a, a less secure facility. And uh, he wound up, he was supposed to serve life, but he wound up getting paroled in the early 70s. And he moved to Memphis. And he, wound up, he, he stayed uh, friends with Johnny Cash the rest of his life. They're both gone now. He married. He, had, he, he, he turned himself into a fairly solid citizen. Uh, and, and a musician? Uh, was he still playing bass? No, no. He didn't, I don't know if he did it for fun. No, he, he didn't. He worked... Uh, I don't know. Uh, he worked for a musician, Ricky uh, Ricky Skaggs and, and Sharon White. There, really? Uh, yeah. Uh, wow. And his wife, Earl's wife, uh, who he married, and he helped raise her uh, her boys. Um, 
um, she worked, she was like a, a, took care of Ricky Skaggs and uh, kids and Earl did odd jobs around the house. So he had, he continued, uh, and he did, you know, he, again, he was still friends with uh, Johnny Cash. So he's around the scene and he led, he led a, an exemplary life, as far as I know. You know, it's a funny thing. The, uh, when he, when he was arrested way back in 54, you mentioned his stepdaughter, but his wife was pregnant when he got life he told his wife look forget me i'm you know i'm i'm there forever uh take take the kid he had she hadn't had the kid yet i guess or maybe it was just an infant she said he said go away divorce me you know live save salvage your own life so she did so he never 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 uh met that that boy his son uh who was born after he was arrested uh and he never apparently tried to but when we posted uh, this Ojai Quarterly story uh, on the uh, Ojai Valley Museum history, ojaihistory.com site, there's a commentary thing after it at the bottom. And the, most of the comments just great story or I didn't know that or whatever. But after some years, uh, maybe two years ago, it had been up for years, uh, a post appeared from a daughter of the son that Earl never knew, who was look, trying to find out who her grandfather so was. Earl's granddaughter? Earl's granddaughter, who had never, all she knew was a name, and who's, who's ever heard of Earl Green? So she's Googling, and she winds up in our story, which told her this fantastic story. Now, Earl was dead by then, but you know she was so relieved, and amazed, astonished, to uh, get this uh, information about her, uh, her oh, grandfather. Wow, and... And I was able to connect her with Earl's widow so um, she could find out more. And uh, anyway, so so there's that. Wow, that's a way to, to bring it all around. So just uh, um, thank you. Uh, I was just, you had mentioned, I know you're very involved in the community. In fact, probably even more so than I am in a lot of ways. The actual yeah. working part. I go to a lot of meetings, but. You do a lot of work. Now, you took over as the chair of the um, literary branch of the art center? At the art center, yeah. I just, this is a, I joined, I just came on board in time for the lockdown, so I've done nothing yet. But uh, we haven't figured out, what, the art center will be back, but we haven't figured out exactly when and exactly how. Yeah. Because live venues are just tough at this point. They sure but, are. But we will do, yeah. So it's it's a, a Monday Monday evening thing once a month or every other month, depending. Yeah. So you took over for Ilona. Sorry, I did, and uh, two successes. I know Ilona was very diligent about making sure that we got uh, stories, and she was um, she always gets good turnout for those events. And Monday night's a perfect perfect occasion to do. Uh, uh, you know, a community gathering. I, I yeah. sure hope we can get back to that. that. Just I, the I, flow I, of life in Ojai depends so much on public spaces. I, do, I agree, just, and uh, I, 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 we're we're certainly intend to if we can, and I, I think we will. Obviously, at some point, people will gather in groups again in the future. Uh, it is it's hard to say exactly when, but we certainly hope that and and intend that that will happen at the art center. Um, and, uh, have you given uh, any thought to what, okay, I'm sorry, go ahead. 
Well, in terms of um, the, the current OI quarterly, as Kit Stoles' uh, story about Tree Bernstein, former beloved OI resident. And uh, former the, Literary Branch exactly. chair. Exactly. So yeah. I am, uh, I am uh, following in, in Tree's footsteps as well. And she, had, of course, as Kit wrote about in the OQ, she has a new book out, which so I'm gonna. I've just sent her an email this morning saying I hope. Obviously, we can't fly her out, but she she has many friends here. Next time she, she, you find yourself in Ojai Tree, why don't you come do an event about your book at the art center? So hopefully, uh, she'll be back to her old stomping grounds at some point. Yeah, if, if only for uh, one evening. Yeah, that's uh, one program. But then you've got to fill up all those other Mondays. Given any, uh, you have any ideas? Anything? Uh, to tease out or thoughts um of a couple of things um hoping to get judy vander to do uh, something arising from her mu musical ethnology books um uh, that would be fun and uh some of the things they'll probably do some programs that flow out of things i've done for the oq that are literary you know, you've talked about doing a podcast on the thornton wilder our town connection and uh, yes i think we should definitely do that and not too far off in the future i think a lot of people don't uh i mean you can draw a pretty of course there's a million uh, ways to interpret the play our town mm -hmm. but if you look at thornton wilder's life and his first exposure to a small town happened here in ojai when he was a student at the thatcher school that'd be a fascinating Fascinating podcast episode to talk well, we'll, about. We'll, we'll, Is our town our, our town. town? Well, we'll certainly uh, do that, and also some some connection at the art center. Another thing we can do and talk about, um, perhaps in a separate podcast, is also in the current OQ, which is the Eve Babbitt's connection to Ohio. Oh yeah, that was fascinating. I haven't. I just started the book, uh, the Lily Anolik book about Eve Babbitt's. But that cultural history of Los Angeles is just fascinating. And it is. she was like right in the thick of it. I mean, oh, like yeah. she was a muse and an artist herself and writer. And she was the it girl in a way that we don't really have people like that anymore. Well, I think she's, uh, I'm not sure. I think it's, there's a certain amount of uh, romantic coloration to Lillian Olick's view. I don't think if you went back yeah. to 1971 that everyone in L.A. I lived in L.A. from 74 to 78. I never heard of Eve Babbitt. So, of course, I wasn't traveling in her circles, yeah. which were rarefied. But she did publish tons of articles in places like Esquire and Rolling Stone. She published a number of books, and they are uh, very interesting. I mean, this, the uh, and, and, was, and then, of course, she... she Years go by, you fall out of fashion, and she suffered a traumatic fire, and she became a recluse, and so she was, she vanished from the um, literary scene until this Lillian Olick rediscovered her and, and started pushing her again. I don't necessarily buy Anolik's uh, strange animus towards Joan Didion, who was a friend of Eve's, but she her whole thing is to push Eve as the the much better representative of uh, uh, yeah. playing L.A. I think it's it's just the storytelling archetypes of having somebody to play off against and 
from what my limited exposure to Eve Babbitt, she was much sunnier, more optimistic. It didn't seem to oh, and more fun. She, find that that seam of darkness and shadow, dread that Didion. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Eve is a lot more that fun. Day of the Locust, a lot more fun. Yeah, carousing and freewheeling and playful, and even that story that uh, we printed this in the summer issue of the Ojai. Quarterly that's out now. Uh, story that Eve Babbitts wrote about the Ojai Music Festival, which um, even there she's like doing this old person thing uh, in Ojai, and there's still that element of of people in Ojai. I think of well, I don't. I'm oh sure, mis- misremember the names, but you know the the doyens of of high culture that. The Ojai Music Festival. Yes, and if, it's when got you, its base and founding energy from. And when you attend uh, festivals, you know, you, you know, it's not like um, a Hollywood punk club or something. I mean, you know, there's a somewhat more uh, skews a bit more up uh, up the age than than uh, yeah. The sort of thing. And even then, she said, there's always something that she could find to fasten attention on to those performances yeah and i mean she 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 wrote in in the separate piece which i quoted in my article is not the one she wrote she she sort of she made it clear that she did not like going to these causes which we should point out that her father was one of the uh well her mother helped too but her father was a Saul babbitts was a he was a violinist for the uh, 20th century fox studio orchestra and he was uh, he helped john bauer um, create the OI Music Festival in 1947. It was and, and it was it kept coming back in his early years. He was the first concertmaster. Anyway, so 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 Eve and her younger sister Mirandi would be hauled up here for you know a long weekend once a year, and they loved OI, but at least per Eve um, did not like sitting through you know Stravinsky concerts and so forth. Even though Stravinsky was their godfather. Yeah, what a, what a connection. So uh, yeah, Eve. Eve is. Uh, Nolak never mentions Ojai in her book, and why should she? But uh, Eve, and you know, for her family, Ojai loomed large, and for her, because she keeps writing about it, dropping the, the when she writes when she writes in defense of L.A. as a, uh, a wonderful cultural, vibrant cultural center, as opposed to the Eastern snobs who used to, you know, sneer at L.A. Uh, she always cites the Ojai Music Festival among. High up, if not the first thing she says. Yeah, I had that conversation with Eric Guzmanian about Los Angeles and New York cultural status. And uh, I think we both agreed that there's a lot in Southern California and California in general that it's unmatched. That There's a freedom and a lack of expectation and constraint that gives us a lot of uh, potency and artistic vitality. Oh yeah, and actually, the whole Eastern snob thing is, I think, long since exploded. Put to rest. Sim- simply by, I mean, for example, L.A. is is uh, you often hear it referred to as the real capital of international art, let alone American art. Um, even though New York is probably still generates. Uh, more money in the auction houses and so forth um, because L.A. And, and Eve was part of this. She used to hang out at Barbie, Barney's Beanery in the 
before she was a rock and roll muse, she was a Barney. Yeah, Beanery, what was the name uh, of the? You, we had that photo of Walter Hops in the, in this current issue. Yeah, and he was the curator of what museum? Walter again? Hops was uh, he was not an artist himself, I don't think, but he found he co-founded the Ferris Gallery, which was Ferris uh, Gallery. Uh, yes, the they had uh, Andy Warhol's yeah. first really high-profile show. Yeah, all the way from New York, um, and they Hops went on to. Uh, the um, Pasadena Museum, Art Museum, as it was called then, now it's to Norton Simon. And he, he then did, uh, curated or organized the uh, first Marcel Duchamp retrospective. And Duchamp had given up doing art like 50 years earlier after inventing, in effect, conceptual art, which, which meanwhile, L.A. was rediscovering, well, New York was still uh, doing all that abstract expressionist stuff. Which is why it's sort of the Eve writes about this um, in uh, several of her books, and she credits Hobbes. She she dated Hobbes, um, and of when course, she was still uh, in high school or something, right? Uh, no, she was twenty at that point. Okay. She was dating other people when she was still in high school. But she, anyway, so she um, she was definitely she was big on that scene, and uh, she of course posed for the famous nude playing chess with uh, Duchamp photo which is uh, still iconic and still uh, recognizable yeah and we were lucky enough to have jules weissman do his uh, illustration based on that photo which uh, i thought turned out really wonderful really wonderfully well it did it did indeed so um yeah we couldn't get hold of old julian wasser wasser there's a, we could we could dial deeper into yet another oi connection as you're Head for the exits, which is of uh, Jan Smithers. It's yes. kind of like two, your two degree of Ojai. I mean, yeah, I mean, e- e- you can't Babbitt's, get far. You can't. Oh, there's a, some Ojai connection always around the corner. Always around the corner, right? The 1966 Newsweek cover before she was in WKRP in Cincinnati. What a cutie she was, and still is emblematic of today's yeah. youth in 1966. Yeah. The teenagers. So, uh, what is Julian. what is a teenager? Yeah, that was something like that. A also brand Julian new Wasser. cultural phenomenon. Also, Julian Wasser. Yeah, and he, uh, yes, he seems to make a uh, he went again and again attra- photographing attractive young women, and apparently he had quite a reputation. But he wouldn't return our phone calls, so we turned to Jules instead and her illustration. Oh, there's point. another uh, Ohio connection. Uh, you mentioned. The Pasadena or the Norton Simon Museum, but that that was uh, Thornton Ladd was the architect who lived in Upper Ojai for decades, hmm. and I've I only got that. to know him uh, casually through our mutual friend Larry Wild. But he was as gracious a gentleman as you'd ever want to meet, and he was probably ninety when I met him, hmm. and just so still working, still drawing. Still designing you, and creating. You, you said Thornton Ladd. You mean Laddie Dill? Oh, did I mess that up? I thought Thornton Ladd was the architect oh, okay. who built I, the I, Norton Simon. I defer to your knowledge. Okay. I'll check it out. I'm going to have to make an edit on the audio file, but I'm pretty sure Thornton Ladd was the Norton Simon architect. But in any event, is it's just uh, the confluence of of Ojai and all these big cultural shifts. That's one of the reasons why I do the magazine 
There's so many fabulous stories to tell, of which you've told many, many, and hopefully many, many more. Certainly. I, I look forward to it. All right, Mark. Anything else going on you want to talk about? Uh, well, I just happened to have my laptop handy, so I can confirm you were right. Lord Thornton Ladd uh, was the architect of the Pasadena Art Museum, which became the Norton Simon. So no, no correction necessary. Yeah, well, I'm glad glad of that. In any event, I look forward to us being able to clap eyes on each other in person here soon and maybe get back to our um, Deer Lodge trivia uh, team. Deer Lodge. I hear the Deer Lodge is open outside. I don't oh, know. is it? Maybe they'll, they'll start up trivia soon, although it'd be hard to get uh, poor Scooter to do uh, social distancing and, and be the trivia master. That's but, right. I, I uh, to, yeah, yeah. Awesome. I feel like here, here we are in early June, and it's a beautiful day out, and it feels like Ohio is starting to get back to normal. It uh, does. Uh, I don't know if, it, if they said anything about a, a bump up in cases. I haven't looked lately, but there's there no, a lot more there hasn't out there? been. Yeah, there are a lot of people out there. And you're seeing that people aren't necessarily as scrupulous in their social distancing and wearing masks as they were, you know, in late March, early April. Yeah. Well, of course, but, you, don't, uh, you don't really have to when you're moving about freely. Yeah. But you still have to. It's still a rule in Ohio that you have to when you're inside a business, whether you're yeah. an employee or a customer. Uh, but if you're, you know, if you're at a restaurant, of course, you have to take the mask off to eat. So it's uh, there's only one way to make that work. And I, I yeah, it's interesting. You, uh, a lot of challenges for our, yeah, a lot of challenges for our community, which is an economy based on visitors, yeah, and hospitality industry. So, fingers crossed, we can get out the other side of this and oh, back I think to we, our usual routines. We will. we will. I mean, we can't not. But there'll be some hiccups and along the way. But at some point. You know, the world will once again meet face to face and in groups. That's the human animal. So, well, someday. I'll drink to that. I look forward to hoisting a drink with you in person and we'll toast to that. Me too. Thanks for having me. All right, Mark. All right, Mark. We'll talk soon. Okay, bye. Just thinking out loud. If this interview whetted your appetite for Johnny Cash, I urge you to check out the NPR interview with Def Jam founder Rick Rubin on his 10-year collaboration with Cash, which began in 1993 when the singer was largely forgotten or dismissed as a nostalgia act. Rubin, who founded Def Jam in his dorm room and worked with hard rock acts such as Metallica and Slayer, also worked with a lot of hip-hop acts like the Beastie Boys. If you just search NPR and Johnny Cash and Rick Rubin, you'll find that interview with Terry Gross from 2010. Rubin determined right away that Cash's lonesome baritone was best suited to minimal arrangements, sometimes, uh, often, just Cash and his guitar, and that because of the inherent pathos in his voice, he could find harsh beauty in unexpected places. Those albums that Rubin produced with Cash featured a very simple formula. Traditional songs in the folk tradition, original compositions by Cash, and then cover songs. The best known, and the one that stands the test of time, is the achingly beautiful cover 
of Trent Reznor's Nine Inch Nails song, Hurt. Recorded just days before June Carter Cash passed away, it took Reznor's song of addiction and despair and made it into an elegy about love and loss. Check it out. It's haunting and a fitting tribute to this man of profound and uniquely American talent. That's it for this episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. We'll keep an ear out for you.